we are concluding our series, The Boy Who Changed the World. Here's the thing. Have you ever felt your heart break over something? Right? Th- these guys, for instance, they, uh, they saw just a simple quote on Facebook. Man, there aren't enough socks in homeless shelters. I wonder why that is. Their heart broke over something. They got a creative idea, and they said, hey, maybe we could alleviate this need. Maybe we could fix this problem. Maybe we could be the change to help more homeless people find uh, socks. Here's the thing. They weren't seamstresses. Right? They'd never made a sock before. They weren't experts more than any of us are who wear socks on a daily basis. They really had no idea what they were probably doing. They just had a creative idea to fix a problem. They were compelled by the problem they experienced. They experienced something that was broken. They said, how can I go about fixing it? Brokenness, fixing. I want to show you another video of someone who did something similar. Check this out. So at the age of four, Alex, who suffered from neuroblastoma, opened up a lemonade stand in her front yard to help raise money for childhood cancer, the cure for childhood cancer. And she raised in their very first weekend $2,000. She gave it to her local hospital. Four years later, when Alex died at the age of eight, her lemonade stands, which had inspired thousands across the country, just like it had raised over a million dollars. And in the last 12 years, the Alex Lemonade Foundation has raised $120 million. They funded over 550 cutting-edge research projects and has helped countless families resource the care that they need for their child suffering from cancer. And the epicenter of all of this movement was right here in West Philadelphia. Someone from this region right here in our hometown did something so profound that it began a movement throughout the world. But here's the thing. Alex wasn't educated. She was a four-year-old, right? She didn't have a, a degree in entrepreneurship. She didn't have a business degree. She didn't have a degree at all. She was simply a girl suffering from a horrible, horrible condition. She saw a problem in the world and she said, what can I begin to do to find a cure? What can I do to fix the problem? So she opened up a lemonade stand believing that she could make a difference. She had an experience that not only broke her body, but it also broke her heart. And she said, what must I do then to fix the problem? There's a story in scripture of two men named Peter and John. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them up to the book of Acts. That's about five, uh, it's not about, it's, it's five books into the New Testament, uh, about two-thirds of the way through, the, through your Bible if you're, if you're flipping to it. This is just after Jesus had risen from the dead. And these two men were going around healing the sick and curing the blind, and they were offering restoration to those who they saw needed it. And beyond this, they were also preaching this great message that Jesus had risen from the dead and he had begun this restorative action of God. And so the teachers of the law and the chief priests, they didn't like what they were hearing, they didn't like what they were seeing, they didn't like that these two guys were doing all of this great stuff, and so they arrested Peter and John. They threw them in prison. And the next day, they dragged them before the Sanhedrin, which was this council of chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, to be questioned. And they asked Peter and John this very simple question. They said, by what power... Or what name did you do this? How are you healing these people? What name are you preaching this message? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, replied, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. 
Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and here's where it gets so important, and realized that they were unschooled, they did not have an education, uneducated, but very ordinary men, they were astonished. But they took note of something very, very important. They took note that they had what? Been with Jesus. Unschooled, ordinary men, but unschooled and ordinary men who had been with Jesus. Peter and John were two of Jesus' disciples. They had lived the last three years following Jesus around and learning from him, seeing what he had done. Now, it wasn't unusual for rabbis to have disciples. A rabbi, meaning teacher, assumed that you had people to teach. So Jesus calling himself a rabbi assumed that he had people to teach. What was unusual about this whole thing is that Jesus had to approach his disciples in order for them to follow him. It was customary, actually, for a disciple to approach a rabbi and say, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? Rabbis having to make the first move to try to gather their own crowd kind of smacked of desperation. And so it was the case in almost every other context that the disciple would approach the rabbi. But the story of Peter and John and the other disciples is very odd compared to what was normal in their day. And see, in their culture, at the age of six, male children were brought to the synagogue where they would begin to study the Torah. So at the age of six, children would be brought to their local synagogue within their local village, and they would begin to study the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rabbis knew that their law and their truth was only one generation away from from being forgotten, so they made every single effort to instill within the young children the great mind and the great teaching of their law and the Torah. And so on the first day of class, the rabbis would cover every single child's slate, you know, that writing board that the children would have, they'd cover it in honey. Because honey was precious, and it was exquisite, and it was delicious, and it was a, uh, it was a precious commodity in their day. It was valuable. It was a sign of God's favor. There was nothing finer than honey and more pleasurable or more exotic than pure honey in their day. And so the rabbi would have them begin licking the honey off their slate. And their hands would be dripping with honey, and so they'd begin licking the honey off their fingers. And as they did this, the rabbi would say, May the word of God be like honey on your tongue. May the word of God be like honey on your tongue. May the words of God be the most pleasurable and exotic, the most enjoyable thing that you could ever comprehend. And may these words, the word of God, the word that is life, this pleasurable, exotic, beautiful word of life, may it seep down into the very depth of your being. As a child, you were introduced to the scriptures as being, as there being nothing more exotic or beautiful or valuable than the word of God. That's how you were introduced to the scriptures. And so for the next four years, from the ages of six to ten, you would memorize the entire Torah. For four years, you would sit and you would memorize the entire Torah. And we were like, my six-year-old could never memorize the Torah. And I'm like, how many of your six-year-olds have the entire movie of Frozen memorized, Right? We're like, yeah, 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 who can memorize that much? It's too much. And we're like, no, 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 we just choose to memorize different things in our day. The word of God isn't nearly as valued as it once was, and so we don't instill it within our children like it once was. But our children certainly are memorizing things. Do not get me wrong, they are memorizing things. And in their context, every six to ten-year-old would begin to memorize the first five books of the Bible. And at the end of those four years, they had the, the Torah memorized, and they could be grilled, and they were the best of the best, then they could move on to more education. 
And then for the next four, maybe five years, they would begin to memorize the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And so many Jews in their day had, you know, at the age of 14 or 15, had the entire Old Testament memorized. And it was at this point that the, that the little youngins, right, the 14 to 50-year-olds could then approach a rabbi that they wanted to study underneath. They could approach a rabbi and they said, can I be your disciple? And the rabbi would look at them and they would grill them on their understanding of the Old Testament. They'd ask them all these you know, profound questions about their understanding of, of uh, how the Torah worked and what the Old Testament was trying to communicate. And if the rabbi was pleased, then the rabbi would extend an offer. Come, follow me. But it wasn't the, dis- it wasn't the rabbi who went to the disciples. It was the disciples, the disciples who went to the rabbi and said, can I follow you? You would leave your family and your village if you were chosen and everything you knew to follow this rabbi to studying under him and that your life would become exactly like his life. And that was the point of being a disciple, that your life would actually mimic his life. A disciple is that the person, <coughs> a disciple is the person who is learning to live your life exactly like the one you are trying to follow. That is what discipleship means. That I'm learning to live my life exactly like the one I am following. But here's the thing. No 15-year-old prodigies approached Jesus. No 15-year-olds ever came to Jesus and said, can I be your disciple? Can I follow you? Will you be my rabbi? Instead, Jesus has to go out. Jesus has to initiate. Jesus has to call. Jesus has to ask this ragamuffin group of 12 disciples, these fishermen and these tax collectors and these zealots, will you come and follow me? This doesn't mean that Jesus was inadequate. It doesn't mean that he was unpopular. He wasn't the kid that often got picked last in the kickball field, you know. It's like, it speaks to something far more profound than this. It speaks to the fact that calling always begins with God. That calling always begins with God. That Jesus chooses 12 disciples just like God chose the 12 tribes of Israel. And the reason God did did this was not because he saw something beautiful in Israel. It's not because he favored Israel more highly than all of the others. Rather, he chose them for a purpose. And so God doesn't just call people to be Christians or call people to salvation someday. He calls people to a purpose, to be a blessing and to be a light to the world. Jesus chose his disciples so that they would multiply disciples and that would bear witness to what God had done. And so Christians have a responsibility, in other words. God doesn't just choose us to be saved. God chooses us to be on mission. Jesus chooses 12 men, and they stay together for roughly three years following Jesus. They saw Jesus weep, and they saw Jesus cry, and they saw Jesus grow tired and weary. They saw him do all sorts of crazy and miraculous things as well, and and heal the sick and cure the blind and make the lame walk and, and raise the dead even at some points. He did all of these incredible things, but for some reason, the disciples just could not get Jesus through their head. Some reason, they always struggled. With all the incredible and crazy things they saw and the amazing things they saw, they never could comprehend exactly who Jesus was and what he was all about. They were so slow to comprehend. So it would have made sense that after Jesus had died, that these 12 disciples would have disbanded. Right? They didn't really entirely fully understand exactly who Jesus was. So at his death, it would have been so, so, it would have made so much sense for them just to have abandoned Jesus. Yeah, he had some good things to say, but Jesus really wasn't worth dying for, right? A, a Messiah who was dead is really no Messiah at all, so all their hopes were dashed. And, uh, and considering that he was dead and that he would have been placed into the tomb, giving up was only the natural thing to do. And so the disciples giving up only would have made sense. But for some reason, they didn't. For some reason, the disciples did not give up. 
come Sunday morning, they had a new hope, and they had a new message from God, and that he had vindicated Jesus and risen him from the dead, and now they had a new mission to go out and to spread this very message into the world. But this fact alone did not make them extraordinary. This fact alone did not make them special. They remained uneducated. They remained ordinary. But it is still the fact that they had been with Jesus. And so how does the world change? How does the world change? Does making an impact on a community have to come from the government? A well-funded organization? Does it have to come from somebody who is exceptionally talented or exceptionally popular? How does an uneducated, ordinary person begin to change and impact the world? And this answer to this question is so simple, but it's so profound, and it's right here in the text. We need to learn to be with Jesus. How does community change happen being with Jesus? The answer is not to do more things. The answer is not to work harder. The answer is not to invent new pathways to develop new ideas. The answer is to be with Jesus and to know him more intimately and let knowledge of him and his love that he has for us seep deep down into our very being. It's to abide in his presence and to rely on him more. Because what we discover is that when this is done, your eyes will begin to look like God's eyes. And you'll begin to see the world like God sees the world. And your hands will begin to move like God's hands move. And your heart will begin to break with the same injustices that God's heart breaks for. And your mind will begin to think in the same way God's mind think. And what will happen is that we will become like Jesus. And as Jesus walked among the earth, do you think the world changed around him? Do you think households find hope where there was no hope? Do you think households found peace where there was no peace? Did the world begin to change as Jesus walked among the earth? And as we become more like Christ, a disciple of him, following after him, having the knowledge of him and intimacy with him grow deeper within us and his word going down into the deepest parts of our being, then we too will have an expression of influence upon our community. This is one of the main reasons that we as a church have our mission statement to know God and to make him known. But the thing is, we cannot make him known before we know God. We cannot let to make him known take precedence over knowing God. And this is one of the main reasons we need to grow in our knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. This is in part why we emphasize things like community groups so often. And we desire every single person to be in a community of people who is learning to know who God is. This is why we emphasize our desire for each person to get into scriptural study and in smaller intimate communities where you're learning who God is and learning to apply it to your life. This is why we offer Bible studies and things like Starting Point and, and smaller other and other intimate communities where you can get in community of people to learn who God is so that you might be changed so that the world then might be changed and the natural movement of those moving upward toward God is outward towards the world this is just a natural movement and so let me provide you it's kind of a silly illustration but let me provide you what this is all about so uh here's me by the way I'm wearing my restoration church t-shirt you can all see this I got a beard okay makes sense and uh, this is the world. If you can see this, I actually drew the world in this. So we are in the world, right? We're not necessarily of the world, but we are in the world. And so how this whole thing works is that as we, here's, the God, here's God's love. Oh, I can't tip over though. It's not going to be good. As we are learning more of who God is, and we are letting his knowledge and love of him fill us up, the natural movement of this overflow is upon the world. We cannot reach the world first. We, met, we must let the love of God overflow out of us and then onto the world around us. And this is the natural movement of, love's God, 
God's love in our lives. As he fills us up, the world naturally receives the benefit. As he fills us up, the world naturally receives the blessing. It is the natural movement. Because as we are filled with God's love, then the natural overflow is upon our neighbors. The natural overflow is upon our coworkers. The natural overflow is upon our family. That's how it works. We get creative with reaching our community because the creative God overflows through us. We find strength to reach our community because the strength of God works through us. And we get to make God known only because we have first known God. And it does so naturally. Let me give you a couple of stories to, to illustrate exactly how this works. You see, shortly after Jesus died, there was this guy by the name of Anthony who had heard Jesus um, share the story about, or share the, dis- the disciples of Jesus were sharing the story about how Jesus had told the rich young ruler that he should sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor, what he had earned and give them to the poor. And so Anthony says, okay, you know what, if Jesus is calling people into this kind of lifestyle, then I want to live this kind of lifestyle. He he takes all of his worldly possessions, and he was a pretty wealthy guy. He takes all of his worldly possessions, and he sells them, and he gives them to the poor. Anthony then, in turn, moves to the deserts of Egypt to begin some monastic communities. He begins to wrestle with God out out in the desert. And as the knowledge of God grew in him, right, he, he had a deeper knowledge of God and love of God continued to overflow out of him, and he had a more intimate relationship with God. Christians by the hundreds also left wealth and comfort behind to seek the way of Jesus behind Anthony. His influence began to inspire other people. In one of these communities, 20,000 women committed to following Jesus simply because of Anthony's influence. So one guy does what God has called him to do. He, he desires to know God more intimately, enters into a community of people to help him do this. And then he begins to influence other people. And out of Anthony's influence and all of these communities that began to form, people began placing their time and their work and their prayer and their possessions under the larger goal of being in a fellowship with God and knowing God more intimately. Knowing God became the filter by which they placed their work and their money, their relationships with other people, their time, how they lived their life, God became the filter. They wanted to know him and his love more intimately. And these communities began the movements that would later be known as the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the Benedictines, the Jesuits. And these communities in their energetic pursuit and following Jesus would shape much of the political and educational developments of the Western world. So the world that we know it today began because of these communities that popped up in Egypt and other parts of the world. And it was from these communities that they began to send missionaries throughout the entire world. And so Patrick was sent to Ireland. Uh, Thousands of others were sent to other parts of Europe. Until about 1,000 A.D., Christian communities ranged all the way from Greenland to China. So two-thirds of the world and the entire world as they knew it had experienced the love of Christ because of these Christian communities. Because Europe had been won for Christ, the son of a noble family who aspired to be a knight received instead a calling from God to go and repair God's church, which he saw was in ruins. And so Francis of Assisi, many of you probably know that name, Francis of Assisi left behind money and security and all the other things that the world was compelling him to chase after, and he began to attract followers. First he had only three followers, and then he had 12 followers, and then he had thousands of followers, and in part in uh, just a few years, he had 10,000 people following after him, learning to be like him because he loved God. Learning the way that he lived his life because he was learning to live his life like Jesus. He was in pursuit of knowledge and a deeper knowledge of God, and other people were being influenced and inspired to do the same. 
One of those people inspired to do the same was a guy by the name of Dan Schaff. He was a missionary uh, in <coughs> Papua New Guinea. He faced a really difficult challenge working among the people of Papua New Guinea because they believed in the supernatural and they saw spirits everywhere and they saw that there were gods in everything. But they had no word for a big God who created everything. A big God who is God over everything. And so Dan got to know them and found that over the years that they ex- the, the extended families had this figure that they called Hayo. Hayo was a father figure who would arbitrate disputes and make sure that everyone was cared for and decide what was fair. And so Dan began his translation of Genesis. Back before the time of our ancestors, Hayo created the heavens and the earth. And people said, wow, wow, we we had no idea. He is Hayo over everything? And Dan said, well, what if he was Hayo over everyone? What if he was high yo over everyone, not just for you, but also for your enemies? Also for the cannibals across the river. What if he was high yo for them too? And they said, oh no. Well, if that's true, then we would have to make peace with them. And guess what happened? They made peace with their enemies. Cannibals in Papua New Guinea learned of the God who loves them and experienced peace and reconciliation because a man was inspired by someone who likewise was committed to following the Jesus he learned from a Christianized Europe made possible by missionaries sent by communities developed by a guy named Anthony. What if Anthony had said, you know what, I'm going to live in my luxury? What if he's like, you know, that's a nice teaching, Jesus. You seem like a really nice guy, but I'm not going to commit my life to you. I'm not going to abandon everything that I know and follow you. Yeah, you seem like a good guy, Jesus, but I'm just not into it. What if Anthony would have said no? Now, certainly, certainly there would have been other opportunities for things like this to happen. But a guy named Anthony committed his life to knowing God. And he said, let me see what will happen. Let me see what will happen. And over the course of the next thousand years, 1,500 years, the world around him literally changed and became Christianized. Do you guys recognize the impact that you could have on this world? Do you guys recognize the influence that you could have on this world? But guys, it doesn't start with getting creative. It doesn't start with doing more. It starts with knowing God. I'm going to invite the band forward as we reflect on this and just as we sing one more song uh, together. All of these people were, on, were ordinary men uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus, and that was how the world began to change. And so I've been praying a lot about what God is calling us to do in 2017. What is God calling Restoration Church to do? And you know, my, my tendency uh, is to do more, is to, is to reach out further and to do more and to do more things and to get more creative. And, and what I keep hearing as I'm praying is, Ross, be near me. Be near me. That's what God is calling us to do, Ross. Restoration Church, be near me. Fall more in love with me. Let my love penetrate deeper into the fabric of your being. Let the knowledge of me and intimate relationship with me ground you and create a foundation for you. God wants us to come into his presence to be with him. To develop a more robust and committed prayer life. To have more people praying for for this community and for one another. To be in his word and let it like honey Be precious to us and exquisite and beautiful and delicious to us and let it seep down to the very fabric of our being that even even if we don't want to be in God's word, that we would choose to because we are disciplined people. 
And that maybe when we delight in God's word, then it would inspire us to, to invite other people into it. And, and maybe out of desperation, because certainly we come to God's word in desperation sometimes. God would meet us in that context and we would find a more intimate presence with him. So beginning next week, we are starting a series called Hashtag Adulting. We need to grow up in our faith, friends. We need to grow up in our faith. We need to learn what it means to follow after Jesus. And so we are going to be walking through Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you've ever read Colossians, it's a, just an incredible book calling people to grow up, to grow up into their faith. And from now until summertime, we're going to be going through Colossians. We're going to take a couple breaks in the middle of there some, sometimes and uh, address a few other topics. But for the most part, over the next several months, we're going to be walking through Colossians and learning what it means to be a true follower of Jesus and what that looks like. We're going to grow up in our faith so that as we draw near to God and we are near with God and we are being with God in Jesus Christ, we're in his word more regularly, more consistently, and being a people of prayer then the life that we live as we come into Jesus Christ would impact our communities. It would not be through our efforts or our hard work or our creativity. It would simply be the presence of God changing us so that we might make an impact and a change within our community. Beyond that, other opportunities for you to get plugged in and to grow up in your faith in Jesus Christ. As I mentioned already, group link next week. Come get into a community group. Get plugged in with other Christians and learn what it means to follow Jesus. Get into a Bible study with other Christians and learn what it means to follow Jesus. Commit yourself to prayer. Commit yourself to a life of pursuing and chasing after Christ and see what that does to you. See what that does to your communities.